Let us pray. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be always acceptable to you, my Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, before I uh, get going tonight, I just want to acknowledge our sister uh, Chandra's return. So it's so good to see you, Chandra, walk back in. We've been praying for you and so glad to, to see you. Uh, we need to uh, continue to pray for healing for Chandra. Also, um, pray for our sister Cindy uh, Wright, who is at home sick as well. So uh, we'll remember her and pray for you both in the prayers of the people. Well, this evening, I want to uh, just point out that the Old Testament tells a story. Yes, it tells a great many stories, but it's all a primary story about God's love for the men and women that he created. It's a bit of a romantic comedy, you might say. Not a comedy in the sense that it makes us laugh, but a comedy in the sense that it ends well. In classic, dramatic language, it is a comedy. It has a happy ending. And it's odd that most of the individual episodes that we find throughout the Bible make up a library of tragedies, right? Or stories that do not end so well. So how is it that such a tragic book like the Bible, how is it that it can be described as a comedy, Well, our readings this evening answer this question, but to understand them, we have to dig into the tragedy of Israel's story. Now, before we begin, I should point out that the story of Israel is somewhat allegorical. That is, it relays specific information about a specific people at specific points in history, but it corresponds to something else the human experience. If you spend much time reading the Old Testament at one point or another, you'll find it difficult to understand how a people who passed through a parted sea could turn on the God who actually parted it. You may scratch your head at the obstinance and stiff necks of figures like Jacob or David or Solomon or the priests and kings of Judah and Israel. And if you aren't careful, you may come to judge the specific people and even think unkind things about them. Now, I want to let you in on a little secret about the Bible in case you're tempted to think in this way. The more time that you spend in it, the more more you realize you are not reading it so much as it is reading you. That's why Jesus tells us that we will be judged by the same measure by which we judge others. The Jews are important, but they also represent each one of us who has an amazing capacity to turn on our God. And I only mention this because I understand that the political climate of our day is leading some into anti-Semitic rhetoric out there, and I would hate to think that any one of us would participate in such behavior. This is not a political statement. 
about who is in the right, Israel or Palestine and everything that's going on. It's just merely a theological statement that says that we are all sinners in need of forgiveness, which is offered only through the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. And this is precisely why the Bible ends as a comedy rather than the tragedy its many parts seem to tell. So, back to our readings. Now, you may already know that Israel was once a united kingdom under a single king. First, there was King Saul, and then there was King David, and then his son, King Solomon. And Solomon is the one who built the first temple that we spoke about last week in our readings from last week. And after Solomon, the kingdom divided into the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. So this is why it gets so confusing sometimes. The Old Testament constantly talks about Israel. A lot of times it's referring to the northern kingdom. Now, each kingdom had a series of their own kings, and from the day that they split, each kingdom descended, descended deeper into rebellion against God. And our Old Testament reading is from Isaiah, who was a prophet in the days in Judah toward the end of the Jewish kingdoms. And he prophesied around the year 740 BC. And like the other prophets, he warned of the coming exile. It would begin with the Assyrians and be finished by the Babylonians. But both kingdoms would eventually be conquered and the inhabitants would be carried off to foreign lands and serve, that serve foreign gods. But this would be the fulfillment of God's promise in Deuteronomy chapter 28. There we read, Because you did this, and because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, and thirst, in nakedness, and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until it has destroyed you. The end is coming. (coughs) Well, you probably would not invite Isaiah to many parties, would you? Well, of course, all of this happens in time. And you would think, there you go just another tragic story in the history of God's people. But wait, we read something different in our Isaiah passage tonight, don't we? Comfort my people, says your God. This is the same prophet saying this that spoke doom and gloom. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. What? that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? Well, let's stop and think here about all of this for a moment. You have creation, right? You have the fall. You have Cain and Abel and Noah and the flood, the Tower of Babel, the call of Abraham, the birth of all the patriarchs, the enslavement in Egypt, and the exodus, 
And then the covenant. And then the wandering in the desert. The conquest of Canaan. Joshua and Jericho. Judges and Ruth. That's quite a bit of time. And we haven't even gotten to King Saul. He's not enthroned until the year 1050 B.C. We're talking thousands of years here. And as the story goes, that is thousands of years of sin, transgression, and rebellion against the God who not only declares his love over and over again, but routinely forgives them, shows them mercy, and delivers them from peril. To read the book of Isaiah is to read a heartbreaking tragedy, not of a people being ripped from their homes and carried off into a foreign land, but of a faithful husband and father whose bride and children repeatedly stab him in the back. Talk about tragedy. And yet, and yet, he tells his buzzkill prophets to speak comfort to his people. After ages of infidelity, this God says, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not, says, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord who comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, and he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. What a hint of comedy that even in the midst of discipline, the rebellious children are told that it will end well. And that's the thing about stories. That's even the thing about comedies. You have to live through the story to get to the ending, don't you? Something will happen, but what? Well, the Israelites were eventually allowed to return home and to rebuild. And of course, many chose not to. But for the following few centuries, Isaiah's words might as well have been wishful thinking because no prophet could be heard speaking for God in those days. No comfort, no doom or gloom, nothing, silence, nothing but ancient promises unfulfilled. That is until John the Baptist shows up. Mark begins his gospel like the roar of a lion. He says, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. That's it. There's no genealogy. There's no Mary or Joseph. Straight to the point. Mark ain't messing around. And he introduces us to John the Baptist as the messenger foretold by Isaiah. Now let's think about this for a bit. There you are, living in, say, Jerusalem, and you've memorized the Torah since you were a little kid, and you've heard all the stories about the failures of your ancestors and how God sent them into exile. 
You've heard how great, how your great, 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 great grandparents came back to the land and how puny the new temple looked in comparison to the old one, at least before Herod expanded it. And you've heard nothing but tragedy your whole life and how God promised to turn it into a happy ending. But you look around and you see the Roman occupation and oppression. You see how you work your tail off only to render season his unfair share. So where's the comfort? Where are the rewards and recompense? Where are the lion and the lamb? But then you start hearing about this dude out in the desert wearing camel's hair and eating locusts and honey. He's baptizing folks and calling Pharisees to account. He's blasting the Roman soldiers and preaching good news. They say he's preparing the way of the Lord, making his path straight. And then you remember Isaiah 40. And for a moment, you wonder if this thing might actually end well. Well, As I mentioned earlier, last week we lit the hope candle. And hope is what we have when we believe that the future holds something good. Something good like a happy ending. And the happy ending we hope for is much more than a happily ever after. This week we lit the peace candle, which, if added to hope, is available to us before the end comes. This peace we see in John's message, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness. Friends, we want more than just a happy ending. We have a deep need to acknowledge our own participation in the tragedy of the human experience. We can complain all day about how others have wronged us and how God seems to abandon us. But we need to understand that we are not just innocent victims of the depravity of others. We're all covered up in it. One of my favorite Christmas carols is written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. He wrote it during the Civil War when he was tempted to despair in the midst of all the blood and the fighting and the conflict. One of the verses says, There is no peace on earth, I said. But as the carol moves on, that's when he hears the bells ringing with the old familiar carols. And those carols are, fulfilled, are filled with promises, fulfilled promises, that in the word become flesh, forgiveness is offered to mankind, that in the midst of human suffering and tragedy, a comedy is written, that in a brittle and vulnerable infant, comfort is often offered to the rebellious humanity, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The possibility of peace is available. John's message in the desert calls us to acknowledge our own participation in the tragedy of fallen mankind. 
This is not for us to wallow in our shame, but to repent and receive forgiveness. But John's message would be meaningless if he did not point us to the one who was mightier than he, the one whose sandals he was unworthy to tie. It is Jesus Christ who turns this tragedy of the human experience into a comedy of joy. It's because of his submission to the Father and full obedience to him and his crucifixion for the sins of the world that peace with God is possible for you and for me. Because when we acknowledge our sins and receive his spirit, we also receive the good news that Mark so desperately wants us to understand. This life does not have to be a tragedy. I don't know how you would describe your life. You may see it as an endless tale of disappointment and tragedy. Or you may have a good sense of humor and say that your life is the greatest comedy of all. But unless you have received the comfort spoken to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have not experienced the peace promised to all mankind. If you have received that peace... If you know that your life is a divine comedy because you know your sins are forgiven, then you share that good news with others this year. Advent is a season of waiting. It's a season of great anticipation. Uh, Last week, uh, my son Sammy and I were driving home from the service. We were looking for, he was looking for that station that plays Christmas music all year round. We found it. It's really hard to listen to that station when it's like 60 degrees outside, you know? Because the weather outside is not frightful. And the only thing we were dashing through was probably a 95% humidity last week. The season can be so surreal because folks aren't singing, if they're not singing about baby Jesus They're at least singing about a winter wonderland that can only exist hundreds of miles away from where we are. And here, we have tornadoes and sirens. We read about war in Ukraine and the Gaza Strip. When it seems tragedy is all around us, it can be hard to remain hopeful and experience peace. But remember, the promise has already been kept. The word has already become flesh. Jesus Christ has already been crucified for the sins of the world. He has already risen from the dead. And here we are in the in-between, the already but not yet. And we're awaiting his return. So wait with great anticipation. Weather the tragedies of the day with hope with the knowledge that peace has been established on earth and that God looks with favor upon mankind. And remember that he is making all things new and that as we await the happy ending, the greatest comedy of all, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those who are with young. He loves you, little flock. He loves you. Just as he suffered, 
so too will we suffer, but only for a short while. So let us wait in anticipation and with patience in peace for the happiest ending, which will really be the beginning of everlasting life. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us this patience, that you would renew this peace and this joy and this hope in each one of us, that we might grow in love and thankfulness for all that you have done and will do for each one of us and for your whole world, but that we might faithfully wait, as Paul admonished us or as Peter admonished us in the New Testament reading that we wait in anticipation, that we reach out our hands in love to others, and that we pursue Christ's likeness until the day you return. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.